0: All right, everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Ground counter Podcast, your weekly. It's going to be weekly again, apparently for the foreseeable future. Uh, look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I am Robert Winfrey. I am your host, and i would be very brief about this backstory. Apparently, my attempts to communicate with Jen just got up the appropriate recording time this week got lost of facebook messenger not the first time that's happened to me or the last i imagine so jeff should be back next week that's the plan but stepping in on short notice returning to the show for the first time in a while uh 411 luminary and currently on the in the midst of an expedition through the heavyweight history of boxing with mark ratelich your friend and mine the east coast pugilist pat mullen is here pat Very nice to have you back. How are you doing,
1: Rob? If there's anybody I'm happy to pinch hit for, you know, it's you.
0: I appreciate you. I really do. You're saving me from talking to myself again, and you're saving the poor listeners from having to listen to me drone on to myself again. So, always a pleasure to talk to you as well, sir. How are you? You, You're keeping up okay? Not going crazy, or crazy is a state of mind, Rob. (laughs) Yes, it is. All right, uh, let's jump in. Uh, as a brief heads up, uh, the UFC, I mentioned this on my kind of truncated show last week. We have UFC 249 coming this Saturday from the great city of Jacksonville, Florida, which is apparently, as far as the state goes, actively trying to suppress reports of corona deaths. Uh, good on you, Florida. You keep you keep on keeping on. But... Uh, my somewhat reticence about the responsibility of the card going forward or not, the UFC has a procedure in place. Whether it's a good procedure or not, we will need kind of the acid test to confirm. They are under the auspices of the State Commission, and the Association of Ringside Physicians this current, this last week relaxed their previous stance, which was, we are not in a position to think it is ethical or safe to hold any combat sports under the current circumstances to something more in in line with what we're getting out of the UFC this time around, so they are being compliant. They are not running to Native American territory to try and host a show, and that's really all we can ask for. Somebody's going to wind up taking the dive first on this, and would I personally rather we wait until there's a more viable treatment for the disease in case something bad goes wrong? Yes, but I don't run a multi-million dollar business where the financial pitfalls of this kind of delay and I do want to talk about this in a minute run to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars so uh, I'm just a guy with a podcast but anyway UFC 249 we went over the bout order last week but we'll go over it in more detail here I've had some time to make some picks to do a little bit of tape study not as much as I'd like but yeah you can't have everything our main event For the interim lightweight title, because reasons, Uh, Tony Ferguson, a former interim champion himself on one of the longest, if not the longest winning streaks in UFC lightweight history, uh, dating back to 2012 into the tune of 12 or 13 fights, um, is fighting... Everyone's favorite violence maniac that isn't Tony Ferguson, Justin Gagey, who is himself on a three-fight winning streak, has finished all three of his last opponents, has finished all four of his UFC wins. His only losses are to Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier. The man is a bonus machine. Again, he is a certified hurricane of violence, meeting another hurricane of violence. Um uh, It would just be the most MMA thing ever if the fight sucked, but I don't anticipate that. Uh, I don't like this fight in a vacuum. Well, sorry, in a vacuum, I couldn't oppose this fight. I don't like this fight as a real-world consequence because we are putting one of the most anticipated fights that the UFC could put together, arguably one of the most important fights in the form of Tony versus Khabib, in jeopardy. Because... Justin Gagey is nobody's stepping stone. Uh, Pat, what, how do you see this one playing out? Because I'm much as I'm uh, very quickly on my end, I'm picking Tony, but we're talking about the upper bound end of the deepest division in the sport. No one should be surprised if Gagey pulls this off.
1: Uh, and I'm not going to be because I'm actually leaning towards Justin Gagey for this one. Um, and I know a lot of people are shocked to hear that because Tony's Tony, but, you know, one thing you and I talked a little bit about this in the buildup before we went on is that no matter the fight, really as good as he is. And as much as we've gotten used to him being in these type of give and take wars, Tony gets hit and Tony gets hit a lot and Tony gets lit up by guys who a lot of times don't necessarily have the power to finish him. Or the technique to utilize the power they have correctly. And, you know, we've seen him in trouble against certain guys. We've seen him in trouble with Kevin Lee. We saw him in trouble with Anthony Pettis, where he was arguably losing that fight in the minds of some. In the minds of some. Um, you know, he, he gets hit a lot. Rafael Dos Anjos hit him and nailed him pretty good a bunch of times. I just...
0: I mean, Lando Venata nearly kicked his head off. That fight could yeah, have been stopped, and I don't think too many people other than Kevin, other than Ferguson would have complained.
1: Yeah, in the first round, he, he had them all on Queer Street, and uh, that was rough. And Gagey, to me, for what he lacks in Pettis' speed, I think he hits twice as hard. Probably accurate. And I don't think he's that much slower. So I expect that he's going to hit Tony, and the thing that separates him is that I think he, he knows enough how to finish somebody because we've seen it time and time again. We saw it in WSOF when he dominated everybody he was in there with for the most part, and you know even in the UFC, even in the fights he's lost, he hasn't lost them because the guy he fought was, was better in the case of Eddie Alvarez because Eddie's not. Eddie fights very similar. He just got caught. He got caught with that knee that ended him. I think Dustin Poirier is a better fighter in terms of his technique, and he's made marked improvements. But that was absolutely a fight Gagey was in as well and almost had won. And Poirier uh, is the,
0: I don't know if you remember this. he Those leg kicks he was landing on Poirier, he actually tore Poirier's. I believe it was his quad. He did. With those kicks.
1: So, again, you're talking about another tool that somebody like Anthony Pettis used very effectively. I really think Gagey's walking into this fight with nothing to lose. Because he's taking it on short notice, so it's a favor to the to the company. He's getting a title shot, for lack of a better way to phrase it. Let's just call it a title shot for the
0: time being. It's a champion's payout, if nothing else, when, for your next fight.
1: Yeah, and uh, he's coming off of like a series of get well fights, basically, where I think he's looked significantly better than he did upon his first UFC couple fights. You know, he looked really good when he fought Michael Johnson and came in and dominated like he was supposed to. He got caught by Eddie. He lost to Poirier, where there's no shame in that. And then he came back, one punches James Vick, one punches Edson Barboza, and beats up Donald Cerrone, you know, before before Connor did it, and it was cool.
0: He pretty much one-punched Cerrone.
1: Yeah, it was it was really one punch at the beginning of the end, but he, he you know, did finish it with a flurry and So you're talking about a guy who's on a pretty good run after some bad luck came his way with everything to gain and nothing to lose against a guy in Tony who's disappointed that he's
0: not fighting Khabib. I mean, to be fair, I'd be disappointed, too, if I were Tony.
1: Yeah, without question. Uh, And again, like I know he's been fighting and winning, but the level of opposition is not so much better than what we've seen Gagey in there with. Let's be real. His last
0: last couple of fights, Ferguson had, what, the Cerrone and the Pettis fights were his last two? Those were his last two. And no disrespect to those gentlemen, they're also on this card and they're both luminaries of the division, but in 2018-2019, Anthony Pettis and Donald Cerrone are not top ten fighters.
1: Correct, and again, you look at the time in between those fights, Pettis Pettis and Ferguson fought and that was what the the latter part of 2018 he fought uh, Cerrone I think it's almost a year ago
0: right uh, June of 19 yeah
1: okay so so 11 months we'll say uh give or take a few days so that's two fights in two years I'm not saying Tony's rusty I'm not saying he's old and he's not sharp or anything like that I but he's 36 and when you start to slow down you know and you don't take as many fights and you're not as active Sometimes the rust kicks in. Sometimes there's a lack of motivation when you're not fighting the guy who you've been dying to fight for God knows how long at this point,
0: five years,
1: you know, and, and there's one of two ways that can go. That can be, I have to win this fight. So that fight happens, or I have to, I don't care about this guy. I just need to get past him and, uh, you know, get, move on. And I think if he's looking past Gagey, that's a huge mistake because Gagey is just too dangerous. And I, I, Just from everything I've seen, everything I've heard, I can't help but get the vibe that he really is looking past Justin Gagey. And you're talking about a guy in Gagey who people forget was a Division I All-American wrestler because he doesn't use it. But against Tony, there's a very good chance he's going to use that takedown defense to keep the fight standing and just try to turn it into a brawl. And if he does that... I like his odds, and I really feel like Tony is a guy who doesn't always fight a fight that's the best way for him to win, which we saw against Pettis, which we saw in the beginning against Vinata. He He's made these miracle comebacks, but you only have so many of those in you until it finally catches up with you when you meet the wrong guy. And I think if he tries to fight Gagey like that, I think we're going to see Gagey surprise everybody.
0: Yeah, again, I'm picking Tony because I just do. I mean, I need a really compelling reason if I'm going to actually pick against Tony Ferguson. And while Gagey offers compelling stats and compelling points in his favor, I'm just, I'm not quite there yet. But I will say that again, if Gagey wins, I am not going to be surprised at all. Uh, You mentioned Tony's 36, and... That's thirty six with a fair bit of miles on you in terms of both wars you've been in. Again, some fights Tony goes out there and just blows a guy out of the water. Absolutely happens, but it seems like every other about every other fight, he's in a war. He's in some kind of knockdown dragout affair. I mean, again, he he blew through Cerrone pretty much. I mean, the first round was loosely competitive, but he was never in any danger. Didn't really get tagged against Pettis. He got dropped pretty badly and to his eternal credit, again, came back and was able to make Pettis you know, give up between rounds. And I, to be fair, I don't blame Pettis one bit for that. He got cut to pieces and had a broken hand. Like, okay, you're done. No shame. The Kevin Lee fight, he lost the first round badly. Uh, you know, the Dos Anjos fight was mostly uh, his fight, but he did get hit a few times here and there, and I think he lost one of the rounds. Uh, you know, Venata hurt him badly. Barboza had some success against him. It's that's going to catch up to you at some point. That that bill comes due. Nobody puts that off forever. And while Gagey's had his fair share of wars, Gagey is only 31. And that's a pretty big five-year gap between 31 and 36. And Gagey's changed his style over his last couple of fights. He's not the same head down, hands up, wade forward brawler that he used to be. He's again, this is to his credit as well as his coaches. he's made some adjustments. And he's an incredibly dangerous fighter. Gagey is, I think if you go by the UFCs and however much value you want to put on their punch machine, Gagey is pound for pound the hardest puncher in the entire promotion. And I have no problem believing he's the hardest puncher at lightweight. There's plenty of evidence to support that. This is a very, very dangerous fight. And... I think we're gonna. I think one way. I don't think it really matters who wins this fight. I think the UFC is going to go with Conor Khabib two for Khabib after this fight, regardless of who wins. And I say that because not only is there more money in Conor Khabib two than Conor than than uh, Khabib versus either of these two guys, that's just a financial reality, but. Whoever wins this fight, I have a really hard time seeing this fight be quick. Uh, it might, now again, that's not impossible, but I think whoever comes through this is going to be beat to hell and is going to need time to recover. And I think the timing is just going to line up to where the UFC will try to do Conor versus Khabib two in September, give or take. Because that's where the most money is. Because whoever wins this might still be recuperating. And because there is no contractual obligation for the UFC to give an interim champion the next shot at the undisputed champion. So I, I do kind of think that's where we're headed here. And I, I may not like that, but I'm not going to pretend I don't think that's what's coming. Uh, so, okay, just on that basis, am I... You think I'm huffing glue here, Pat, about where the UFC's kind of eyes are as far as the future of lightweight goes for the rest of 2020?
1: No, there's there's too much economic uh, incentive to do Conor Khabib too because, you know, again, looking at it objectively, is there a chance Conor can turn that fight around and, and do something different? Yes, there is. Yeah. There are things he can do to win that fight. I think most of us are in the thought process that he probably doesn't win that fight?
0: Probably not.
1: And as a result of that, when that happens and he doesn't win, his Q rating goes down, and we know that, and he's not going to sell as many pay-per-views going forward at that point. On the off chance that he does win, then you have a mega fight, third fight in the works to get a ton of money out of at that point. So there's just too much incentive to not do that fight. And the funny thing is you and I were talking about how if KG wins this, we may never get uh, Tony and Khabib unless Khabib and Connor were to fight and Conor were to beat Khabib.
0: And you know, as you mentioned that, I think even if Conor beats Khabib, they might do an immediate rematch for that. And just, uh, I mean, look, for anyone out there who may not remember this, uh, it's easy to kind of forget because there was a lot of screwiness around it. But Conor Khabib, one, is the most successful pay-per-view in the history of MMA. Full stop. That's it. That's the one. The, if, the, if you don't think the UFC is going to bend over backwards to try and run that back, uh, you're not paying attention, especially when you consider the financial difficulties that Endeavor is facing right now. And uh, Before we move on to the rest of this card, I think that deserves a brief, and we'll keep it brief, sidebar, but uh, something came out, I think, in the New York Post this last week about Endeavor's financial woes. Um, they're going to be looking to lay off or just get rid of about a third of their workforce, which is a huge number. And one of their only – they own multiple properties, among them the UFC. They own, I think, the the professional bull riding. Mm-hmm. Uh, PBR is theirs. Uh, they, they have a bunch of other stuff. But – that they took on an enormous debt load when they bought the UFC. Uh, A a deal that is, I'm not a financial guru, but they were advised against the terms of that deal twice by federal regulators. Um, That deal has the potential to be One of those case studies that you teach in economics classes at university, like people study the AOL Time Warner merger for how bad it was. I think even if I'm not saying Endeavor is going to go under, be very clear about that. They're, however, going to go through a very transformative phase in the next eight months. And I think you're going to be able to point there's going to be a lot of smokescreen about how the pandemic did a lot of damage to them. And don't get me wrong, it's not a good thing. But that giant debt load they took on and the interest rate they have to pay out is a huge part of some of their financial burdens and woes. And I think if you want to study, a, you know, an acquisition that is done to the detriment of the, of the acquiring party, Endeavor's purchase of the UFC is one of those that you want to look at and go, here's what they did wrong. Here's how to avoid those steps. And I I bring that up also because the UFC's – I've been speculating for the last couple of weeks that the reason the UFC wants to kick things into high gear is that there's some kind of language in their contract with ESPN that requires them to produce a certain number of events or they don't get paid. And some of the reporting seems to be backing up my speculation. I think the number that was tossed around was uh, 42, The UFC has to produce 42 live events for the ESPN platforms over the course of 2020 to get the full amount of to be paid the full amount that ESPN is contracted to pay them, which I believe is something to the tune of six or seven hundred million dollars. That's a pretty giant incentive to uh, not just turn the machine back over, but the UFC has to make up time. They lost six events. It means they have to make up six more weeks over the course of the remainder of the year. And that's not nothing. Uh, So that's the other reason I think Connor Khabib, too, is like the big light at the end of the tunnel for them financially, because that thing would be enormous. I don't know if it would be bigger than the first one, but I don't think it would be appreciably lower. And Endeavor... Needs infusions of cash and a giant pay-per-view like Conor Khabib 2. That's where their eyes are. So that's kind of my take on it. Pat, I'll give you the last word on the financial side of things, and then we'll move on to your five, your favorite fighter and mine. <laughs>
1: uh, you know, at this point, the, the Endeavor process, the ESPN contract, there's a lot riding on what the UFC is able to do. And it's not that the UFC is the make-or-break piece of business for Endeavor. But right now, based on what's what we're capable of doing, they really mean a lot to both Endeavor and to ESPN at this point in terms of producing original live supporting content, which they're going to start doing. So it's going to be a real interesting time where right now we're talking about having three events in the span of seven days, um, which is... Really, really ambitious, to say the least, especially in the circumstances we're in now. But this is what it's come to. This is where we are, and we're going to take the ride while it goes.
0: Yeah. All right. uh, Jokes about your favorite fighter and mine aside. Our co-main event right now is scheduled to be a bantamweight title fight between champion Henry Cejudo and former champion and exceptional talking head, analyst, commentator, Dominic Cruz. Pat, Dominic Cruz hasn't fought for the entire duration of the Trump administration. He last fought in December of 2016. That's just about four and a half years off. Or three and a half years, excuse me. Just about four. And it's real easy for people to forget how good Henry Cejudo is, given the character that he leans into. But Henry Cejudo... In back-to-back fights, beat however you, whether you disagree with the decision or not, I disagree with it. Beat Demetrius Johnson, stopped T.J. Dillashaw, and stopped Marlon Morris. You're hard pressed to find a better three-fight stretch than that. You are. And again,
1: whether you agree with the decision or not, it stands. Cejudo is on record. He beat Demetrius Johnson at a time when nobody else was doing that. Let's or coming close to that even. Let's let's put it that way. So yeah. I think even just pushing a close fight with him at that point in time was a major accomplishment. You go into the win over TJ Dillashaw, okay? Not only did he beat Dillashaw, he beat a Dillashaw on performance-enhancing drugs. Not only did he just beat him, he ran through him in half a minute. Then you get to Marlon Marais, okay, who we all loved coming in from his run in WSOF. And we knew how good the guy was. He came into the UFC. Again, whether it stands or not, he lost a very uh, controversial decision to Rafael Assange that we thought he won pretty clearly. But look at the names on his resume. John Dodson, UFC stalwart, former title challenger. Aljamain Sterling, always a particularly fi- a pic- particular picture in the top ten. Jimmy Rivera, who was the man coming out of Bellator and stopped him. Assange gets reversed. This time he gets the right call. And then he comes up against Cejudo, who takes care of him, knocks him out. Cejudo is a very, very good, talented fighter. He has Olympic-level wrestling at his disposal. He's getting better in the striking game with each of his fights. And he's learning how to use his wrestling defensively to keep a guy in his striking range when it's beneficial to him.
0: Yeah, I think one of the best moves Cejudo made was when he decided to spend some time uh, at Leoto Machida's camp because it did wonders for his striking game overall. Uh, he went from a very kind of upright boxer, boxer being lo- used loosely in this case, to a much more MMA-appropriate stance and strategy with his hands.
1: Yeah, much lighter on his feet, more uh, lateral movement as opposed to straight in and out.
0: And he's got power. Uh, he's not really a one-punch guy, but you feel it when he punches you. And I, I bring this, I say this because it's important to understand how good Cejudo is. Now, on the flip side, worth noting, Cejudo himself, come, his layoff is not nearly as long as Cruz's, by orders of, by an order of magnitude or so. <laughs> But Cejudo hasn't fought in about a year. His last fight was June of 19 when he beat Morais, And he's coming off of knee surgery during that time. And I I think that does cast a little bit of doubt about his ability to perform uh, relative to this. On the other side, we have Dominic Cruz, who, again, giant layoff. Just uh, it, that, This is such a long layoff, it almost it almost makes tape study a bit more difficult because you don't know what the man's been doing during this downtime because he hasn't been in a hospital bed or anything. He's been training for a lot of it. And one of the things he said, I think leading up to the Dillashaw fight, and he's kind of reiterated a few times in the buildup to this one as quick as that buildup's been. Uh, he's he, he's not stagnant just because because he's not fighting. He's working very hard on his skills. He's working on improving. So, we're not going to get the same guy that fought Garbrandt or Dillashaw or Mizugaki. If Dominic Cruz can pull this off, if he walks out of this fight, I'd almost say by hook or by crook with the belt, that might be the most impressive athletic accomplishment in MMA. I mean, I would be flabbergasted. It would be that stunning. To come back from that kind of a layoff to fight a guy as dangerous and as skilled as Cejudo on short notice and beat him? I mean, I don't really have an analog, apart from when he did it to Dillashaw. <laughs> I mean, do you have anything? Is there anything in MMA comparable to this? If Again, if Cruz wins, which is a big if.
1: I mean, off the top of my head, not that I can think of.
0: Uh, you know, I mean, how
1: how long was was George out before he came back and fought Michael Bisping for the the middleweight championship? How long was that layoff? That's
0: a good question. That was a number of years. Okay. Uh,
1: it was it was it was just about
0: four years. I seem so. to recall that's correct. Yeah, it was uh, November sixteenth of seven of thirteen to November fourth of seventeen. So much and, closer to four years
1: and no disrespect to Michael Bisping, but I think Henry Cejudo is a much better fighter than what Michael Bisping was. You know, again, no not disrespect. He won the middleweight championship. You know, he knocked out Luke Rockhold. He, he got his belt finally, but he's not an Olympic caliber wrestler. He is not a fluid athlete the way Cejudo is. He doesn't hit anywhere near as hard for his weight as Cejudo does at his. So, if Cruz is able to come back and pull this off, I think it may even be more impressive than when he did it to TJ. Um, depending on how it goes, but that yeah, I think his own comeback against TJ Dillashaw is probably the best analog to this.
0: Yeah. Um, as for how the as for the fight itself. I actually do lean towards Dominic Cruz here and a, a couple of specific reasons. One is the mo- is the movement. Uh, Cejudo is not nearly as flat or as linear as he used to be. Very true. But the last guy he fought that was approximately as fleet footed, as consistently fleet footed as Dominic Cruz was Demetrius Johnson. And Johnson gave him fits when anytime they were at distance, anytime they were moving. Now, Cruz doesn't fight the same way Demetrius Johnson does, but some of the same principles are at play. And for anyone potentially out there who's going to scream at me about the TJ Dillashaw fight, you clearly didn't listen to my Dominic Cruz uh, skill study because I talked a little bit about the difference in footwork and approach that Dillashaw has versus Cruz. Dillashaw likes to bait you into planting your feet, then he shifts, sets a superior angle, and makes you pay. But he's very much willing to be in the pocket, That's not really Cruz's game Uh, as the type of punches that Cejudo landed on TJ are much less likely to land on Cruz just because of how Cruz would choose to engage that scenario. Uh, Cejudo crashes forward into TJ. TJ makes a minor adjustment, tries to plant and then re-engage. I don't think Cruz is going to be there for the engagement at all. I think that while Cejudo is the superior wrestler, if we're talking just about wrestling, uh, by a wide margin, we're talking about an Olympic gold medalist, he is, I wouldn't say completely peerless in the UFC, but if we're talking straight wrestling, he's he's top of the food chain. But you have to get close to your opponent. And Cruz is longer. I mean, the best takedown defense is not actually a sprawl or underhooks or anything like that. It's just your feet. Just keeping them away from you. You can only shoot from so far out. I like Cruz's chances with his punches and kicks. If he's really if he's really gonna settle in and like and drill some leg kicks, we saw Demetrius have a lot of success with those against Cejudo.
1: Yes, and the one thing with Dom is when he's on his game, it's almost impossible to guess if he's throwing uh, a back a back end punch or he's gonna faint that and lead a leg kick in or then just try to knee-tap you. His varying of the offense is really excellent, and because of the stance switching, how capable he is of that, you're really playing a guessing game if you're trying to lean back and counter, which is why it's so disadvantageous to do that.
0: And the other thing that Cruz's style tends to remove is Henry Cejudo's most dangerous weapon, his headbutt. (laughs) Uh, Okay. I I say that with a a touch of facetiousness, but there is some truth to it. Henry Cejudo, one of the things Cejudo does, anytime someone looks to close distance on him, he doesn't move, he sets his feet, he hunches his shoulders, and drops his head, so your head runs into the top of his. This is a very old technique in boxing, where it's illegal, uh, doesn't get called as much as it should if the other guy runs into you. Uh, Evander Holyfield was a master of the, I think it's called the cheeky nodder, if you're of the British persuasion. Uh, Watch the fights between Holyfield and Tyson. Evander just ducks his head, and when Tyson lunges in, Tyson runs his forehead or his eyes onto the top of Evander's head. It very rapidly dissuades Tyson from lunging in like he's used to. And uh, Henry Cejudo does that a lot. That's not is not nearly as effective against someone who moves the way Cruz does who avoids the pocket. Like he does. So again, I'm leaning towards Cruz, uh, but I don't know. I mean, again, with the layoff for both guys, the caliber of competitor that Cejudo is the caliber of competitor that Cruz is the way they match up stylistically. There's a lot of X factors about what each man may have added to their game since we've last seen them. So, I don't know. Again, I lean Cruz, but I won't be shocked if Cejudo wins. And if Cejudo does, you know that's even on even on that massive layoff, that's a big feather in his cap.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, at the moment, I am favoring Dom um, because it seems that he's finally healthy, which is a big if when it comes to him, unfortunately, and. If that's the case, he does everything that Cejudo has had trouble with and hasn't really shown the ability to truly overcome. And I always tend to lean towards that, especially when the person doing it is the best I've seen at it, which in the case of a healthy Dominic Cruz is who that is. You know, for Cejudo to win... You've got to apply not just pressure because Dom is able to really deal with that well. You've got to apply intelligent pressure the way Cody Garbrandt did, where Cody could get inside, mix a quick combination up, make Dom miss, and then counter and step out of the pocket and make Dom have to pursue him at that point to try to get points back. If Cejudo can do that, he can win. But you're talking about, in Cody, a guy who fought a perfect fight against Dom and a fight where, allegedly, Dom was not able to train properly because he had plantar fasciitis uh, to the point where it required surgery after the fight.
0: You're also so, dealing with, in Garbrandt, a guy who comes from a camp that has spent—there is no camp that has spent more time and more energy studying and trying to figure out how to be Dominic Cruz than Team Alpha Male.
1: Yeah, uh, and uh, again, part of that is a lot of time invested into that. Now you're talking a short notice distance, where it's going to be even harder to me to prepare for a style like Dom's than for a st- than a style like uh, Cejudo's. And, well,
0: especially almost especially considering that Cejudo's original opponent for this date was going to be Jose Aldo,
1: a completely different style than what he would have seen, and. Yeah. If you think while Dominic has been sitting ringside doing commentary, he hasn't been sizing these guys up as he's seen them. You're very, very misinformed.
0: Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. I said, I think a couple of weeks ago, or might have been just last week, uh, one of my issues with this fight is that I think it sets us up for a really bad season of bantamweight action going forward. Hmm. I think if Cejudo wins, they'll try to rebook the Aldo fight. Now, some of this is dependent on travel restrictions and you know, the state of the world. There are, there are a lot of what the UFC is going to be doing going forward is patched together with duct tape and bubble gum. Just with who's available, with who's willing, with which states might shut down, which would, with which ones might open up. I mean, look, we might get through these next three cards and then Florida goes, yeah, no. And then they have to... The UFC has to try and find another location. I'm not saying they can't. I'm saying there's a lot of moving parts. But I think they'll try to rebook the Aldo fight. I think the UFC might be deferential to Frankie Edgar and let him jump the line. Because why not? And I think by the time we get through the year of 2020 say who fights two more times, big if we're already halfway through the year. But if you do get three fights out of him this year, I think you're going to get Aldo next, assuming that's even remotely feasible. And then I think they'll try some other form of, uh, you know, aging celebrity personality instead of one of the three guys that should be fighting for the belt. Uh, Three or four depending on how much you want to think of certain wins. And then come 2021 or so first quarter, TJ Dillashaw comes back and the UFC is really high on Sean O'Malley, who, if he continues to fight the way he's fighting, and Hey, I'm not the biggest fan. He actually looked pretty good in his last fight. And I'm not going to pretend that the UFC isn't high on him either.
1: High being the operative word.
0: Fair enough, but I, I think just at this point in time, if you're Aljamain Sterling or Peter Yawn specifically, I, I mean Yawn signed to fight Marais. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I mean, if it does, great fight. Should Yawn should be fighting for the belt, in my opinion. But uh, the world is what it is. So that's kind of my gripe with the making of this fight. I think if Cruz wins, they might do a Cejudo rematch, depending on how he wins. So I I just I think if you're a top three or four bantamweight right now, the next eight months suck. Because you're gonna be fighting killers if you're fighting at all instead of fighting for the belt while a parade of past their prime guys get shots because money I think I saw it on Twitter. The UFC right now at Bantamweight is applying money fight logic to people who have never been documented to draw money. (laughs) This <laughs> is an odd thing, but it seems to be what they're doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, as much as I love Dom Cruz, he's not exactly Conor McGregor.
0: Yeah, ditto. I hold Cruz in incredibly high esteem, but I'm not sure his commercial value is... I'm not sure what his commercial value is, in all honesty. I've never really gone in-depth on that. Uh, anyway, those are our top two fights. Next up, we have a heavyweight fight, because Yay. Uh, Francis Ngannou, who has been... Uh, not allergic are you? Have you seen pictures of Francis lately? Pat, are you there? I am here. Have you, have you seen any of the pictures of Francis Ngannou lately? I have not. Uh, <laughs> Shredded.
1: Oh, that is a scary thought because he's always had that... I don't want to call it like... Baby fat—that's not accurate. But to put it in perspectives like that, I think people who know us would understand. He's always been built more like a strong man than a bodybuilder.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And I mean, when you get to be the size of someone like Engado, I mean, he's what six three, six four, yeah, two fifty-ish, yeah, old boy. Yeah, he's he's pretty shredded. He's been like living at the Performance Institute, apparently. <laughs>
1: That's nuts. I, I'm looking at a picture now, and I see him.
0: He's just, like, shredded. Yeah, he's lost weight, pretty clearly. And given his cardio issues, that might, if he's done it properly, it's a good thing. Anyway, he'll be fighting another heavyweight knockout artist, uh, Jar- excuse me, Jarzina Rosenstreich, who had a pretty significant comeback over Alistair Overeem uh, December of last year. He was. I had him down. I think all four rounds he was losing the fifth, and then he uh, knocks out Overeem with a couple of seconds left. Gives him the nastiest split lip I've ever seen. And credit to Overeem's surgeon for getting that back in order. That was pretty wicked because I hadn't seen
1: Rosenstruck. Like I had heard of him. You know, I knew him as reputation as a kickboxer, and was told like, hey, you got you should probably watch out for this guy. And a friend of mine at work told me. So I was like, all right. And it just happened the first time I saw him
0: was not the Arlovsky fight, but the Overeem fight. A much better indicator of his overall skill set than a quick knockout over a past his prime Arlovsky.
1: But when I saw him, I I think there's the thought process when it's like, oh, well, he's a world-class kickboxer. That gets thrown around a lot Is it based on what circuit you're fighting in. But he looked pretty complete going in there with one of the better kickboxers that we've ever seen transition to MMA.
0: Yeah, I think this fight boiled. I mean, not to make the old adage, but if you do want to kind of boil this down to its base elements, you have the superior power puncher in Nganu and the superior technician in Rosenstreich. And I'm not quite sure. I I tend to lean towards the technician most of the times in these cases. And to be clear, that's not to say Rosenstreich can't punch. He can. But I think Nganu's the hardest hitter in the heavyweight division. And if Nganu's been working on his technique, if he's actually ironed some of that out, if he's got his cardio in shape, if he adds some kicks to his arsenal, he can be an incredibly scary fighter. On the other hand, if he hasn't, I can pretty easily... I don't think Rosenstrike will employ the wrestling game plan. I think if ro- what Rosenstrike will do is, again, a lot of stick and move, in and out, make him miss, make him get tired. A little bit like what Stipe did in the first round of their fight, which featured some very little wrestling. He had a couple of shots that were there to keep Francis honest, but it was more about getting him to waste energy swinging and missing. I think Rosenstreich will probably try to replicate that because going toe-to-toe with a big power puncher like Ngannou is not a good idea, and Rosenstreich's a smart enough fighter to know that. So I'm going to lean towards Rosenstreich right now, but I'm not going to be shocked if he walks into something. I mean, Ngannou has that kind of power.
1: I think what's beneficial to Ngannou is that this is a three-round fight. It's going to give him more opportunity to go all out and not have to worry about the back end of the fight, whereas, you know, let's say if this was taking place on an ESPN card, this is very likely the main event,
0: and it's scheduled for five rounds. This was supposed to be the main event of their show in Portland? Portland or uh, Columbus, one of the two.
1: I I I think it was the Portland show, which, again, would have been a five-round fight, which, to me, on paper, would favor Rosenstruck. Because, again, he's the better conditioned striker of the two in terms of looking for that. Like, in Nganu, and I know he's gotten better and he's worked himself into much better shape. You're still talking about a guy who lost the decision to Derek Lewis. Who, again, is not exactly known for his outstanding stamina. So based on his improved conditioning and the tear he's been on, we haven't seen his cardio tested. Because he's run through Curtis Blades, Cain Velasquez, and Junior Dos Santos all in short order. So, I I think what's playing to his advantage right now is that, one, Rosenstruck will stand up with him and fight. This isn't a guy who's going to be looking to take him down. And two, it's a shorter fight where he can afford to go a little bit harder in those rounds than maybe he would if it was a five-round fight with the chance that... He's gonna to have to stick around with Rosenstruck still in there in the fourth and fifth round, who's proven that he can finish guys late. In this, I am leaning towards Nganu though. And I do think he's gonna catch Rosenstruck and stop him. Just because of the improvements to his con- to his condition and his his size and his stamina, to combine that with his power and the likelihood that Rosenstruck will be there with him and will get hit at some point, I'm pretty confident in Ngannou's ability to take a shot or two from Rosenstruck to get in and just do what he wants to do on the
0: inside. Yeah. Uh, I I really do want to see Ngannou fight someone, fight a wrestler before he gets back into the title picture. I need to see that he's really shored up some of those holes. But, With the UFC still kind of angling, I think, for the Stipe-Cormier trilogy fight next, uh, they might try to hotshot Ngannou back to the title picture to face the winner of that fight. Assuming it's not Cormier and Cormier... uh, Because, I mean, if Cormier wins, he's probably just going to win and retire. At which point you do, what, Stipe versus Ngannou for the vacant belt, probably? I, I would say
1: it'd be Stipe versus the winner of this, more than likely.
0: Yeah, the the winner of this fight is probably your next title challenger one way or the other. All right, at Featherweight, we have a fight between Jeremy Stevens and Calvin Cater. Not a bad fight, actually. Um, I pick Cater without too much hesitation here. He's the superior technician. And while Jeremy Stevens has worked a lot to improve aspects of his game over the last few years, he still struggles with people who don't fight him in an accommodating fashion. And I don't think Cater will accommodate him. And if you don't fight Stevens in a manner that benefits him, he struggles to force you to do so and tends to just not win those fights.
1: Rob, who is it they both uh, have a loss to? Is it um,
0: Magomed Shapirov? Uh, Yeah, they've both lost to Zabit. Um,
1: And I think that's their one common opponent in recent memory, right?
0: Uh, let's see. Cater in the UFC has fought Feely Burgos, Moicano, Fishgold Llamas, and Zabit. I think Stevens fought Mo- Stevens fought Moicano as well and lo- they both lost to Moicano as well would be the other one. Okay. Uh yeah,
1: I remember the yes, it was like a split with Moicano and Stevens if I'm not mistaken.
0: Uh, um, a stupid split, but yes. Yes.
1: So the thing with Jeremy and we talked about this when we were when I was regularly contributing at one point, he's a guy who's always going to be that high level gatekeeper. But even then it looks like he started to slip from that role based on, you know, the loss to Aldo, there's no shame in that. And we saw that coming when it happened. Magomed Shapirov kind of proved he's the real deal by beating Jeremy the way he did. And that was, I want to say, I think that was, that's just about a year ago, if not longer. And then he had the two fights with Jair Rodriguez, where you know there was the eye poke, and then he lost a pretty clear decision to him, even though it was a great fight. Um, but he started slipping. Uh, for and, the
0: record, that that uh, the fight with Ray, with Rodriguez that was actually a fight, Yair uh, should have been thanking his lucky stars that was only a three round fight. Yeah, because he faded badly in that in that third round, and Jeremy was Jeremy put it on him in those last. Couple, that, that last minute or so.
1: Yeah, it was about the last ninety seconds of the round, who where he really came on and just it was too little, too late. But you know, Jeremy goes on these you know win loss kind of binges. I don't think he's going on the winning side of this one. Um, I, I think Qatar, his striking is very good. He's very technical. And we've seen it, like when he stopped Lamas, that was a real good exhibition of what he could do when he's on. Um, I don't think he'll necessarily stop Jeremy, but I just think he's better equipped. I think his tie boxing is really good. I think Jeremy is going to really probably more than anything look for one shot at a time against him. And that's going to open up opportunities for kicks and combinations from Qatar that will score and allow him to get out of Jeremy's range because Qatar, I think is significantly taller than Jeremy. Is he not? Uh,
0: Qatar is 5'11. Stevens is five, eight and a half. So, yeah. So there's a significant range
1: advantage here for Qatar that I think he's going to be crazy not to take advantage of. And I, I would be very, very shocked to not see him working a lot of leg kicks and push kicks just to maintain that distance and probably take a pretty, I don't want to say pretty wide points decision, but pretty clear points decision over Jeremy just based on how their styles break down. And the fact that I think Qatar is just, I think he's got more in the tank at this point. Uh, Jeremy's had a fair share of pretty give and take fights. And again, I think he's starting to slow down and is seeing kind of the, the end of his career a little more clear than the beginning.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, all right, and kicking off the main card, this is the fight that I don't think should be on the main card.
1: Uh, yeah, nobody does.
0: Oh god. For those of you that don't necessarily under that don't that may not understand this, uh, yeah, ESPN likes Greg Hardy. I don't know why, but they do. Uh, we have a heavyweight fight between Greg Hardy and Jorgen De Castro. You have a guy in Greg Hardy who has one win in the UFC, just one. I think he's like one, two, one and two with one no contest. And that that no contest came about because he and his corner. Okay, sorry, he is two and two with one no contest. Uh, he has eight fights. And Jorgen DeCastro is, I think, 4-0 and and has one win in the UFC. I mean, who can be excited about this in all seriousness? Anybody? Spousal Anybody abusers. out there? This is literally the only
1: thing I can think of. Um, uh, I, I, I care nothing about this fight. I hope Hardy gets knocked out.
0: I actually like De Castro's chances. He's got a heck of a right hand.
1: Good. I hope he gets. I hope he lands it, and I hope it renders Hardy unconscious for quite some time. Um, yeah, I, I don't have any. Uh, the less we say about the city, the better.
0: I, I don't. I actually, I'm going to pick De Castro, but it's it's low level heavyweight MMA. Flip a coin, and then don't watch.
1: And then we can talk about, you know, three or four more fights that probably should be on the main card instead of this.
0: Yeah. um, Pretty much any of the next four fights. Uh, It it does bear mentioning this is a stacked card uh, with two exceptions. There are two fights on this entire event I could do without. (laughs) One's Hardy and DeCastro. The other is curtain jerking the entire event. We'll get to it. Uh, But next up, a rematch between Donald Cerrone and Anthony Pettis, kicking off, uh, main eventing our preliminary portion. Um, Pat, these two are basically the same fighters they were when they fought each other in 2013, I think. Let's see when that fight happened. Uh, Yeah, 13 in January. So a little over seven years ago, these two first met. And Anthony Pettis proceeded to liver kick Donald Cerrone into the fetal position, then go on to win the UFC title. Cerrone went on to eventually fight for the belt, uh, lose it, and then continue being the cowboy. I'm struggling to see why this fight goes any differently than their first. The only thing Cerrone's really done in the interim to improve his game technically is at an intercepting knee strike when people try to close distance on him. And Pettis isn't really a distance closer. I mean, they're both a lot more worn down than they were the first time they fought. I mean, who couldn't be after seven years and injuries and fights and training and all of it. Uh, I think if Cerrone gets his win back, I won't be terribly shocked, but I tend to think that Pettis still has enough flashes of the old dynamic ability that it's going to give Cerrone problems because Cerrone is still the same kind of march forward, uh, you know, get induced into leg kicks, straight punches with my elbows flared out fighter that he was that all that time ago.
1: And this is being fought at 170, right?
0: Uh, yes.
1: I actually think that benefits Pettis at this point because he's just had so much difficulty with making that 155-pound limit that uh, even though he's not a natural welterweight, I feel like it's a better fit for him right now because it's not killing him to make 170 the way it did at 55. And that was visible in certain performances of his. I think his last fight where he got choked out, uh, it really it really seemed to matter.
0: So, yeah, I'm picking Pettis. Um, this is... Once again, Donald Cerrone's fifth fight in 12 months, give or take a couple of days, I think, in this instance. Um, for the record, Cerrone's last five opponents are, if they, we count this as five, Al Iaquinta, who he beat, the loss to Ferguson, the loss to Gagey, the loss to Connor, and now the fight with Pettis. Because the Iaquinta fight was in... May was May 4th of 19 this is May 9th so yeah 5 fights in about 12 months which is both completely almost normal for Cowboy as long as as well as it pertains to his schedule and a little bit absurd to try and maintain like you don't see the, the elite fighters fighting at that pace for a reason
1: Yeah, because they're not suicidal. (laughs) Uh,
0: For the record, Cerrone's come out and said that he wants to live in his RV and fight on all of the next three cards. Which he'd do. He would absolutely do it. Um, And if they were on Indian land, the UFC would let him. Uh, So anyway, there's that. Um, We have a heavyweight fight. Fabricio Verdum. Dark Horse all-time great. Uh, Returning to action. This is his first fight since March of 18 when he was knocked out by Alexander Volkov.
1: Yeah. He's been on a suspension since then.
0: Yeah. Um, And then he had a contract dispute with the UFC. He, uh, and he had the USADA issue. Anyway, he's back and he's fighting Alexi Olenek. Um, who submitted Maurice Green in January of this year with an old man armbar. And I don't say that uncharitably. Alexi Olenek is kind of an old man.
1: He, he also has old man body, but old man strength. Yeah. Um, if they, As evidenced they, in his last fight.
0: Yeah. I, credit to Maurice Green in that last fight, man. He held out in a nasty uh, scarf hold headlock for a long time. Uh, If they grapple, it'll be interesting for about, I think, 40 seconds before Olenek's tendency of chasing stuff gets him swept or out-positioned by a vastly superior grappler. On the feet, Verdum is really kind of embraced, last time we saw him, at least a bit more of the Muay Thai styling, being able to use his knees, his leg kicks. Olenek is kind of a... Simple? Simple. If you've ever seen Fedor throw hands, cut the speed by half, that's kind of what you get with Olenek. Um I'm picking Verdum here, but, you know, I just kind of look forward to this one being a fun heavyweight affair in contrast to at least one other heavyweight fight on this card.
1: I think you're right about it. I, I Listen, I, I think Verdum is... Probably this side of Noguera in his prime, the best heavyweight grappler that we've gotten to see. And it just doesn't play well stylistically for what Olenek does. Olenek, like you said, he chases these submissions when they're not immediately present. And he'll work his way to get them. And we talked about that scarf hold he had, Maurice Screen, And yeah, you're going to get away with that against Maurice Screen. If you over-pursue against somebody like Verdum, you are falling into a very bad trap. And aside from that, it may even be in Verdum's best interest to keep this fight on the feet because he can really open up with leg kicks on Olenek, who doesn't check them particularly well. Uh, He's very, very slow, as you pointed out. He follows rather than cuts off the cage when he's looking to score a takedown or clinch. So he's going to do a lot of things that Verdum is going to have the opportunity to take advantage of. It's just a matter of, is Verdum rusty? Is he going to have what he needs to have to be able to do what he wants to do? I think Verdum's still well within uh, his abilities to take advantage of the mistakes Atlantic is going to make and the uh, the holes he presents. And I'd be very surprised if Verdum didn't win this. Uh,
0: We have a women's strawweight fight between Carla Esparza and Michelle Watterson. You know, about four years ago, this would have been a heck of a fight. Huh. Um, Esparza on a two-fight winning streak. I thought she kind of got lucky in the Grosso fight. Yep. Um, I scored that a draw, which I think is I maintain is the correct score for that fight, by the way. Uh, but she's not. So she is technically on a two-fight winning streak. Watterson uh, lost. Is, she hasn't fought since October of 19. Wow. Uh, that's not an undue layoff, but her last fight was the loss to Ioana. Um, you know, I don't hate Michelle Waterson's chances here. Asparza is another slightly smaller strawweight. Esparza is very one-dimensional in terms of requiring takedowns. And if Michelle can avoid throwing 80 kicks that hit the woman, the invisible woman standing six inches in front of Esparza, I think she can win this fight.
1: Yeah, I. I think she's had a couple of fights leading into this that got her back on track in terms of doing what she should be doing. Uh, I think it's the, I think it was the Tisha Torres fight where she was doing that uh, the Invisible Man kick like you like you brought up. Oh, she, really did awesome. Yo-
0: she did it to she did it to Joanna a lot too.
1: Yeah, and it, it cost her in a different way in that fight. The way it cost her against Tisha is how Carla could potentially exploit it and beat her where she doesn't get to set her feet in time and gets held victim to a takedown and then held and held and held and held um, because Carla doesn't really offer much beyond that. Uh, whereas when she did it with Joanna, she was eating very hard counter-strikes and getting lit up on the feet pretty badly. Um, but if you look at Michelle's fights prior to Joanna and after Torres... You have the win over Kovacavich, the win over Felice Herrig, and the win over Courtney Casey, where in each of those fights, she did pretty much what she wanted her to do if you were in her corner. And particularly against Kovacavich, she looked very good. Um, So going into this fight with Esparza, she's really looking at one thing that Carla's going to want to do. Carla's going to want to wrestle her. Carla's going to want to clinch. She's going to want to make it ugly. And as long as Michelle uses her footwork and controls the distance between... Uh, she's probably going to be able to catch Carla coming in every time because Carla's not particularly crafty about disguising her attempts with strikes, and even doing that, she's going to have to play the striking game with Michelle, who's infinitely better at it. All
0: right, and at middleweight, okay, this fight is this is a fight that is buried on this card, but it's a great this fight. It's a weird one. Let's, let's,
1: it's, it, it's a weird one, though.
0: It, I mean, it's got Uriah Hall in it. Of course it's weird. Uh, Uriah Hall is fighting the alligator, Jacare Sosa. Um Again, it's kind of a weird one. Hall's on a two-fight winning streak. Uh, the decision to... Oh, his decision win over what was... Uh, I think I scored it for him, but it was a close fight. And I think Jockeray's last fight was the loss to Blahovic. God, that fight sucked. Uh, yeah, before that, he had the loss to Hermanson, that was really a surprising loss uh, for Jacare. That's uh, so he his age finally seems to be catching up to him, and you have a very explosive, dynamic opponent in Hall. I think if Souza is smart for the first three minutes, uh, he gets the clinch, gets the takedown, and submits Uriah Hall because Jacare on the mat is still one of the best in the world. And Uriah Hall on the mat is orders of magnitude not. But the longer this stays on the feet, Hall, again, has power and has proven to be a very, very dynamic striker. So I'm, I'm going to pick Jacare, but if he's really, really hit the downswing of his career, uh, Hall could end him very quickly.
1: I actually like Hall in this fight. I think Jacare more in the Hermanson fight than in the loss to Jan Blahoyevich. I think in that one, we just expect a lot more out of him than what we saw. And that was one of those fights where I looked at it and I said, I think he's slowing down. And I, I know that a slowed down Jacare is still capable of beating a Uriah Hall and guys on Uriah Hall's level. But the fact that Hall's coming into this after winning two fights, it it starts him off at a positive mental state. And unless Jacare immediately goes in and pressures him and makes him feel doubt, then Hall's mental state should be calm and and he should be able to exploit the openings that Jacare is going to give him by trying to shoot in on him and take him down or clinch with him. Because he does have a tremendous amount of speed in his strikes. And just when you think you're closing the distance, he can hit you with something that will take you into next week. I think that's likely what we're going to see here. It's certainly not impossible for Jacare to get in, get the clinch pressure, make Hall uncomfortable and make him doubt himself immediately. But if he doesn't and he allows Hall to build any confidence, I don't like his odds.
0: I agree with that. All right, then on the early prelims, we have another rematch. Uh, this time, one I'm not opposed to. Vicente Luque and Nico Price in a battle of, once again, Florida men. Um, poor Luque, man. That guy went on one of the, he has one of the better UFC records you'll find. And is, I mean, he was barely in the top 15 when he fought Stephen Thompson, which was ridiculous. He should have been a top 10 guy. Because that fight with Thompson came on the back of a six-fight winning streak, uh, five of which were finishes, (laughs) one of which was over Nico Price. And then he just ran into a guy in Thompson who stylistically gave him fits. And even then, it's not like he was completely unsuccessful in that fight. Uh, Thompson's hung around in the pocket a bit too long on a couple of occasions and got hit. But just and then you have, you know, one of the weirdest fighters you'll ever see in Nico Price, who is coming off of that absolutely brutal upkick knockout over James Vick. I mean, the sound that kick made when it landed still uh, lives in my dreams. <laughs> um, I just. I have a hard time seeing this go all that differently than their first fight, which Luke won via Darce. Uh, I think it was Darce. Yep. Uh, I, on the feet, it's a little bit interesting because while well, Luke is good, Price is wild and has power, and Luke, you know, can be hit. The more this stays on the ground, though, the more it favors Luke, who has a much more proven ground game all the way around. So I'm going to favor Luke again, but uh, if Florida Man Price pulls it out, I will not be shocked. He's just one of those guys.
1: It's yeah, I, I still like Luke here. I, I don't know that he'll get it with a Dars again, uh, considering how difficult it is to pull off. But I I Luke has you know like you talked about if you look at his win loss record prior to fighting Stephen Thompson. Guy was on an absolute tear, especially uh the Mike was, Perry win. He was great. He was,
0: some, he was something like ten and two in the UFC going into the Thompson fight, I think.
1: Yeah, with a, a bunch on on a, in a row, um, and and I, I I I really just I don't see what Price has to offer him at this point that's gonna make me question who's winning. I uh, yeah, I, I like Luke a again, and I wouldn't be surprised if he does tap him again. Just probably not with a Darse.
0: Uh, We have a featherweight fight between Bryce Mitchell and Charles Rosa. Um, Bryce Mitchell's last win, actually. I mean, everyone kind of falls in love with the fact that it was a twister. Uh, I actually tend to look more at everything that led up to it and some of the more foundational stuff he's added to his game. He's not the wild guy that he used to be. He was a lot more solid in his takedowns, a lot more solid in his passing game. He just wasn't the same kind of, let's get in there and, uh, you know, have a blood and guts brawl that he was in a couple of his previous fights. And Rosa's a a guy with a really checkered UFC record. But if you look at his three losses, he's, I think, three and three in the UFC. Yeah. His three losses are to Shane Burgos. Tough guy. Tough, tough guy. A split decision to Yair Rodriguez that, for the record, I did score for him when I did that live. And he lost his debut to Dennis Seaver in 2014. I was going to say, which that took place something
1: like six years ago.
0: When Seaver was actually still good. So while he's got, again, that checkered run, he's lost to very tough guys, and he's got some very good wins. I mean, uh, the Botniak win was very good. He submitted Manny Gambier uh, and Manny Bermudez in his last fight with an armbar. And catching that guy with a submission is nothing to sneeze at. So I expect a good fight. I actually tend to think that Mitchell's cardio is going to be the difference maker. Rosa's suffered with his gas tank on occasion. And I think that the longer this goes, the more Mitchell's going to be able to grind him down until he gets some kind of either striking combination or position on the ground where you can finish things.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised by that. Um, I I do think that as long as he's going to – if Mitchell really gets in on him and gets in tight early, I think that could be a mistake because Rose is good enough to trap him in something while he's still got his full gas tank at his disposal. Um, yeah, uh, this is a pick Um, I like the fight. Um, I, I, I can't pick against Mitchell in this. I think he's. I think he's just better conditioned, like you talked about, and I think he's got enough tools at his disposal to outpoint him. I, but uh, Rosa's just fought so much better at opposition, and even though he hasn't won against them per se, uh, you know what? No, I gotta. I gotta go, Rosa. That's
0: fair. That's fair. Um, the real sad story, you know. Bryce Mitchell has been at the apex of two major stories. Um, that are only tangentially related to what he does in the cage. You may remember that he uh, very nearly emasculated himself with a drill. Uh, Do you remember that story? Do you remember that one?
1: I I do not.
0: Yeah, he was uh, just fixing something, I think, and was kind of storing the drill between his legs and... Okay, you deserve to
1: get at that point.
0: Well, for some reason, decided to point the torque... Towards his, look, I, I've done that before where you put the handle between your legs, you point the sharp end down, buddy. Um, Yeah, and then he also exposed the utter ineptitude of Reebok designers. I don't know if you followed this one, but the man has been calling for camo shorts that he could wear to the octagon for his last, like, three fights.
1: <laughs> no.
0: Yeah, he has. And apparently the design that Reebok sent over was not so much camo as tie-dye. <sighs> I mean, really, how, the, how in the world do you do camo wrong?
1: <laughs> and if anything to, to offset
0: it, you picked tie-dye. Yeah. Um, and for the record, I'm putting off talking about the last fight because I hate it. <laughs> um, but kicking off the main card, Ryan Spann will fight <sighs> Sam Alvey.
1: Yeah, I uh, poor Sam. I think he's done.
0: Sam Alvey, ladies and gentlemen, who in his last six fights has gone four and has gone two and four. The wins being a one knockout over Marching Pracnio, who is, I think was like two and done in the UFC, and a split decision win over John Volante in 2018. That was one of the worst fights you'll ever see.
1: That was a bad fight. Um.
0: I think in 2018, I just gave John Volante the second over, like I, on my year-end awards for 2018 when I did worst fighter of the year. Uh, the second place was just John Volante. It was second or third, because he had like four, three fights that year that were all on the list, and it was just not fair to some of those other fights. <laughs> uh, but Alvey's on a three-fight losing streak. He got TKO'd by Little Nog in 2018. If you want to know how done Sam Alvey is. Uh, Ran into a legitimate up-and-comer in Jimmy Crute and got kind of blown out of the water. Then complained about the stoppage. And then lost a decision to Clidson Abreu in his last fight. Uh, Sam Alvey has been one of the most unappealing fighters to watch consistently for his last, I don't know, eight, ten fights.
1: Yeah, and that's a shame because it was the opposite at one point in time.
0: There was a period of time when he was in... When he very much could induce people into walking into his power, and it was actually interesting to watch how he would do it. Then he ran into Derek Brunson. Then he had a fight with Elias Theodorou, that existed. Then he had a good run. He submitted Eric Spicely. He knocked out Kevin Casey, and then it started. Then the Alex Nicholson fight. Then the Nate Marquardt fight. And If you can't finish Nate Marquardt in 2017, I don't know what to tell you. Then the loss to latest. Then he beat Rashad Evans via split decision. And boy, that fight sucked. It was not good. Uh, it's it's just not. It's just not. A, his game has been figured out,
1: basically. I think. Yeah. Don't on, walk into his left hand.
0: On the other hand, we have Ryan Spann, who's on a six-seven fight winning streak, including seven. a win
1: over Little Nog,
0: including a stoppage win over Little Nog. He submitted Devin Clark in his last fight. Uh, I like Span here. I hope it ends quickly because I don't want to deal with watching Sam Alvey fight. I just don't.
1: Yeah, I'd be very surprised if Span does not win this one in short order. Um,
0: Followed by Sam Alvey turning red while yelling at the referee.
1: Yeah. uh, Sam, I love you, but, you know, you've been in some rough fights lately, and I don't mean for you. I mean for me. And uh, (laughs) I think think your UFC – Cinderella stories kind of coming to an end, buddy.
0: All right. Uh, that is the card for UFC 249, which I will be covering in the MMA zone of 411 Mania on Saturday. All right, um, real quick, I suppose. If you had to guess, how well do you think this does financially? I know there's been a lot of talk about how sports starved the populace is with the pandemic going on. The reality is, though, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that's true. (laughs) Um, The last event the UFC ran, which was right before everything started shutting down, had no competition in the sports department for broadcast and did the lowest ratings of any event the UFC has done on ESPN. Uh, Now, we're dealing here with not something that is cobbled together. I know, uh, didn't the NBA try to do like a horse competition?
1: yeah and uh it, it's it didn't go as well as they planned cuz it wasn't well organized the same thing right now they're doing uh they're having mlb players play the video game mlb the show in like a tournament style format
0: um yeah so question question being this is a real card top to bottom this is two of the best lightweights in the world, but if you're not in the MMA, you don't have to be a full-on hardcore fan to know who Tony Ferguson and Justin Gagey are, but you have to be pretty invested in in the sport to really kind of get up for that fight. So how well do you think this does on pay-per-view? I
1: honestly think it's going to do good numbers. I'm not saying it's going to break any records or anything. I'd be very shocked if it did less than 400,000 buys.
0: Well, we are talking the, you know, how they have to kind of. Are you talking straight 400,000 buys or the rough equivalent thereof under the old pay per view structure?
1: Under the old pay per
0: view structure. Okay. I think that's probably about right then.
1: I, I think it's going to do well. I, I think, one, fight fans as a whole are star for something, and the card they put together is actually very appealing. I, I mean, there's a lot of people that, that I work with who are just starved for any kind of live sport in particular who are looking forward to it just because it's something. And I think right now we're just all in that mode of we need something to do. Hey, this is something. Let's get together and watch this. And it'll actually turn out being pretty good, mind you, based on what the the cards are. But I I, I would really be shocked if this wasn't very successful. I do think it's going to set the the tone for what to expect going forward for the next month or two. And depending on how some people react to the no crowd and how it's produced is going to significantly affect the next, you know, two, three shows that they're going to do as far as making a pay-per-view, uh, out of them versus the regular ESPN or ESPN plus cards.
0: Um, okay. Slightly, uh, s- related to that. Um, the bar—it's really hard to kind of get a real handle on some of these on some of the numbers for events, because the UFC does try to aggregate uh, pay-per-views that are purchased by establishments. So, how do you think the lack of—you know—there are people who won't buy an event but will go out to a bar or a Buffalo Wild Wings or a what have you and watch an event there. Uh, the inability to do that. Do you think that's going to have a significant impact on the, you know, the financial bottom line for this event?
1: I, I don't. I think, you know, enough people in this point are gathering together in small groups and stuff and knowing who's going to hang out with who. And I think it's more a case we're going to see a lot more of that during this going on than anything else. I mean, you know, fortunately, so you know, more group, friends-
0: of, more group of like 10 people in a house as opposed to 30 people at a bar.
1: Yeah, I, I, even even as few as five, you know, something like yeah. that, I think it's just kind of the norm for what we're going to be looking at for this.
0: Okay, and last thing, I suppose. Um, do you think the unemployment factors into this? Because, you know, we are at, what, 30 million people or so? More out of work? Well, uh, do, you, do you think the fact that the UFC is charging, you know, 60 bucks for this in addition to it being behind a paywall to begin with?
1: Considering... People are on unemployment. They're making more than I am working my job. No. <laughs> Fair enough.
0: All right. So, again, we'll be covering that this coming Saturday, and then next week we'll have a full review of that event. Uh, did my clock because I had that down for a minute. Okay. Uh, The UFC also this week, Dana White, announced the – uh, bout orders for the next th- for the next couple of events. So in addition to the pay per view, on the 13th of May, that Wednesday, uh, we're not going to go into detail on these, but we do have the bout. We do have the card, so I'm going to read them very briefly. Uh, the the Wednesday card is designed to punish anyone who watches it. Good Lord. <laughs> um, main event is the Anthony Smith versus Glover to share a fight that was supposed to main event the Nebraska card. Um, that's a good fight. Ben Rothwell will fight Ovin St. Prue at heavyweight. Ovin St. Prue going up to heavyweight because who cares? Uh, Alexander Hernandez and Drew Dober will fight. Not a bad fight. Ricky Simone and Ray Borg could be fun. Assuming Borg doesn't miss weight again. Uh, Carl Roberson and Marvin Vittori is a solid enough fight. Uh, then the prelims, Andre Arlovsky and Felipe Linz. Why are they trying to keep Arlovsky around by giving him cans? I can't figure it out. Okay, in fairness, his opponent is not a total can. Uh, In fact, he won the 2018 PFL heavyweight tournament. Along in his last two fights, defeating Jared Rochalt and Josh Copeland. So, somewhat known quantities there. Had a decent enough run in Bellator, too. Nothing great, but... Uh, Still. Um, At lightweight, Michael Johnson is fighting... (laughs) Okay, I have to relay this to you in case you haven't seen it. Did you see the post from the uh, UFC Reddit about no. how... Okay, There's, there was someone who posted that uh, uh, the person to finally beat Khabib will be a black man because Khabib hasn't fought a black man yet. <laughs> when someone pointed out Michael Johnson, there was another response, I assume facetiously, that said, not black enough. <laughs> Uh, the UFC's read it, guys. <laughs> to be fair, he's,
1: he's beaten
0: Tony. Uh, Michael Johnson has, yeah. Uh, anyway, Johnson's fighting Tiago Moises. Um, Sejara Eubanks will fight Sarah Morris. And Hunter Azure will fight Brian Kelleher. And Chase Sherman versus Isaac Villanueva is on there somewhere. Uh, Chase Sherman cutting down to light heavyweight. I don't care. I had to think about that for a second. Uh, then the May 16th card, so in a couple of weeks. Our main event is the long-awaited clash between Alistair Overeem and Walt Harris. Uh, co-main event, Claudia Gadelia and Angela Hill. Winnable fight for Hill at this point, I think, actually. Um, for some reason, Edson Barboza is cutting to featherweight. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I get that the man is only 1-4 and four in his last five, but those losses are to Khabib, Kevin Lee, Justin Gagey, and then a split decision to Paul Felder that I thought he won. But he's trying his hand at featherweight, and he will meet Dynamite Dan Ige. Um, that's a rough fight for Barboza at featherweight. Uh, there's a middleweight fight between Eric Anders and Christoph Yotko. Uh. If Eric Anders were it, he's another guy with a lot of potential, but who can't seem to put it together. Uh, Featherweight fight between everyone's favorite featherweight, Song Yadong and Marlon Vera. Uh, Song coming off of that draw with Cody Stamen. Best of Man, I think, actually. Um, And then I actually like Vera there. Then the prelims, such as they are right now, Anthony Hernandez versus Kevin Holland. Mike Davis versus Giga Chikadze. That's not a bad fight. I kind of like Giga. Uh, Courtney Casey versus Mara romero Borella, Darren Elkins versus Nate Landwar. Oh, God. Darren Elkins and Nate Land. Sorry, that just hit me. You can't pack two more, like, crazy white people together than those two. Oh, man. And the bad ink. That'll be something. Not sure it'll be a fight, but it'll be something. And at heavyweight, we have a couple of, I believe, debutantes. No, I think Dante has fought in the UFC before. Um, Rodrigo Nascimento and Dontale Mays. So that's what we currently have for that event. That will be, again, the 16th of May. And, yeah. So next week, we'll have a review of 249 and a preview of both of those shows, but we did actually get cards for them, so... That's what we got right now. Uh, Pat, off the top of your head, any of those stand out to you as being interesting?
1: Uh, I I can't say for sure. It's just, it's really kind of just throwing some stuff out there and seeing what sticks in the wall.
0: Um, I mean, they do have... The UFC is kind of hamstrung in terms of number of fighters they have available because they're going to have to be dealing with anyone who's already in the United States. There are still international travel restrictions and is willing to fight under these conditions. I mean, Amanda Nunes recently came out and said, no, I don't feel comfortable fighting and I don't blame her. (laughs) I mean, her fiance is pregnant with their first child, so you know, I wouldn't risk it either. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah they're, they're working with a real skeleton crew here as far as the as far as what they can put forward to the consumer
1: it, it's it's really gonna be a case-by-case case basis which is gonna be interesting interim championships are probably gonna pop up let's be real um, it, it It's really going to – they almost have to kind of ignore a lot of the pre-existing things that happened prior to this and basically work with what they have and just pull that as the promotion for right now.
0: Yeah, that's kind of where they are. And again, they need to make up the six events that they have lost. So I imagine a lot of regional talent is going to get a temporary bump to the UFC. Uh, I mean, regional MMA has just been so catastrophically damaged by the pandemic. It's hard to overstate. Uh, there's a lot of guys who are going to, the UFC is going to have to be, if they can't reuse fighters at a quick clip, they're going to be signing, you know, your local bartender who knows how to throw a right hand. And the right hand is optional. So, anyway, that's kind of where we are right now. The UFC has tentatively scheduled the event after uh, Harrison Overeem for the 23rd, but we don't currently have a venue or location. Um, Some other states might open up in that period of time. I know Nevada is potentially looking at opening up again a little bit. Um, Certainly, at that point, the UFC might be able to at least run proper events from the Apex Center they have there, so... Still up in the air, but that's the plan, at least right now, for whatever the plan is worth. Um, Okay, I think a couple of other things we want to touch on very quickly here from this last week. Um, One, Pat, you and I are both uh, appreciators of former UFC middleweight champion Robert Whittaker. And this last week he opened up about why he's kind of been absent from the sport. He fell out of his, he had a scheduled bout, I think, with Darren Till that he wound up pulling out of. And there was a fairly nice piece written where he talked about just the mental and physical burnout he was going through. Apparently the man's been training seven days a week for the last three to four years. Uh. If you believe the way the piece was written, he came to the realization that this is not sustainable on Christmas. While instead of being with his family, he was out running dunes. I, I mean that if true, and I don't really have a lot of reason to disbelieve him, that's insane. Yes. I mean, training every day like that—that's really not sustainable. It's
1: not. And for people who've never been a part of a camp, even not necessarily a fight camp, but if you never went to football camp in high school or you never went to a baseball camp during the summer, you know, those are a couple weeks at a time. A fight camp generally lasts in the neighborhood of eight to eight weeks on a, a shorter end, 11 weeks on a long end you're talking three, four months at a time of training. And even during that time, it's not happening every day. You know, usually there's one day of rest mixed into your week or one day during the week is more based around, uh, I'm just going to cut weight today and then relax type of thing. For him to list what he was doing in terms of his training, which we read this article, that he was literally training in full every day, seven days a week, four months on end, running dunes on holidays, like we talked about, instead of, instead of spending time with his family, you know, there's the old adage, you work to live, you don't live to work. And I think for fighters, sometimes it's a very difficult balance because the, you know, you're being told things like, well, every minute you don't train, the other guy's training. And so you never want to lose a fight because you are out of shape and, were made to be tired and lost based on your conditioning. That gets into guys' heads, and it can really uh, do a number on you mentally. I think for Robert Whitaker to come out and say that was pretty brave. I think if he was, in fact, doing what he's doing, and I have no reason to believe he wasn't, then he needed to take time away. I'm not surprised he lost because at a certain point, your mind is going to just not connect with you there and your body is going to be physically exhausted and you're just not going to be able to hold anything together. So for him to come out and say exactly what it was and the need to check out and just not be doing this right now, I think it's very bold of him to say that. I think he's probably not the only guy who's felt it, but maybe one of the few who have actually come out and said it. And, you know, it gives me hope that he'll come back at some point after he takes some time just to figure out his life and what his priorities are and that he can understand that he doesn't have to do that in order to be a top fighter and that maybe it was more damaging to him than it was effective.
0: Yeah, if you look at the string that that guy went through, um, I mean, uh, first of all, he did become champion. That's, that can't be undefeated at middleweight until he ran into Adesanya became champion at the same time he had a string of injuries or illnesses that robbed him of time he had 10 rounds with yoel romero uh, both of those fights of which are pretty crazy wars the first one a bit more of a technical war the second just i mean what is there to say about the second fight between whitaker and romero it's um it's an all-time great That all adds up, that all takes a toll and the unfortunate thing about fighting one, there's no off season, uh, which is a big deal. Two, it's really hard to fine tune the process because you have to be it has to be in tune with every individual. You know, some people couldn't do what Whitaker did for even half that period of time before they would have fallen apart or gone. No, this isn't I can't keep doing this in any sort of meaningful way. Whitaker could maintain it and did succeed at the very highest level. It's just, again, it's not really sustainable and trying to fine tune that for each individual is a process. And, you know, for a long time with Whitaker, it was winning and he was succeeding. So if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, sometimes the breaking manifests differently, and you know, Whitaker's one of the few guys in the sport, I think, who is appropriately self-aware of what he's doing, what it, you know, what the cost is, and what the cost-benefit analysis is. Uh, him and I think Gage he's probably the other one who are just like the only guys who, if you listen to them talk about their careers and themselves, actually seem very. Aware and honest about what they're doing, what the cost is, uh, so on and so forth. So I hope Whitaker is able to return. I love watching the man fight, but there's significantly more important things than fighting. And, you know, the grind gets to everybody. It got to, I mean, the other thing that we may not always remember, especially those of us being based stateside, Whitaker kind of carried Australian MMA on his back. For that period of time you know you had mark hunt but mark hunts also you know a new zealander uh they didn't really have uh i think he was the first australian ufc champion he was and he was a very big deal in that country so you know i mean one of the things george st pierre would always talk about was the stress of everyone that was on his back and I don't mean that in a negative way, but you know I'm carrying these people. You know he was the he was the still is in many respects the poster boy for Canadian mixed martial arts. Whitaker was the poster boy for MMA in Australia, and uh, he was I think it was the Australian sports personality of the year one year. Like he was on the cover of magazines, like not not fight magazines. I think he was on like Australian GQ. Like, there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot that goes into the, uh, what he what he was in addition to being a champion in just the athletic sense so I don't blame him for getting burned out I hope he finds the right balance and if we're lucky it will mean he can fight again if not the man gave us some all-time great fights and had an all-time great run at middleweight it's sad that so many people's middleweight runs are going to be held up to one that is very nearly insurmountable and that, that being Anderson Silva but Whitaker's run at middleweight is, I think, an all time great run. And, you know, could be resumed and to one degree or another if he comes back. So, uh, I think the last thing then, unless you have anything else on that that you wanted to touch on. No, no, That was, I think we pretty much
1: kind of agreed with where things are and where hopefully they can go with Bobby Knuckles in his future. All
0: right. Uh, last thing, I think then, I'm um, doing one of. Dan- Dan White did a Reddit AMA uh, not too long ago wherein he expressed doubt that we would get Khabib Tony in 2020. That kind of furthers my speculation that we're going to get that they're going to really push for Conor Khabib, too, assuming travel will allow for it. Uh, One of the other things that came out of I think that or one of the interviews he did uh, over the last week deals with uh, Street Jesus Jorge Masvidal. The UFC had kind of been gearing up for Mosfidal versus Usman for International Fight Week, uh, so for the for the July cards, and that seems to be not what they're doing now. They White said that they're uh, they're looking at different options for Mosfidal as opposed to Kamaru Usman being immediately next for him. Um, so, Pat, I have to ask you if his next fight is not against Conor McGregor, and it's not which. If it's not against Conor McGregor, I don't really care personally. Like Masvidal should be getting either a payday against Conor or a title shot, my opinion. Uh, is it kind of Conor a bust for him if it's not Usman? Because he can do that at welterweight and not actually hurt Khabib versus Conor at lightweight. I think.
1: I would think it would have to be. You know the the two fights you talk about with that are what we've said. Either Usman for International Fight Week, which if it could be pulled off, great. If not, it ends up looking like Connor. You know the payday would be tremendous, obviously.
0: Depending on his contract status, but I assume Masvidal. At this point, I think Mosfidal's renegotiated, so he probably does. He might get pay per view points at this point. I, I
1: think he. I think I think they kind of made that a thing after uh the, the hype around him and Nate. Um, and, you know, obviously that was a successful show. Hugely um, successful. So I, I think they probably are on good terms in terms of that. If not, if I mean, if you can't put Usman together, you can't put Connor together, anything else is going to be a disappointment. I mean, who are you looking at realistically next? Possibly Colby, which, uh, you know, again, epic trash talk, and probably would sell a lot. And so maybe there's a chance he can redeem himself with some pay per view points, but it's not going to do what it would do with Connor, and it's not for the belt against Usman. And those are the two big knocks against that fight.
0: I think if if Colby had beaten Usman, I think Masvidal versus Colby for the belt might be bigger than, might make more sense than Connor for Masvidal. But Colby didn't win, and them's the breaks. So I I don't know. I mean, if you can't, assuming you don't have Usman or Connor, I mean, is there even a third option uh, for you? I mean, maybe they might try to do a rematch with Nate.
1: Which, again, I think is is beating a dead horse, unfortunately. Um, The dead
0: horse being Nate Diaz in that case. Masvidal was killing him (laughs) in that fight. I mean, it's not that Nate was completely a heavy bag, but I don't understand the people who were like no in the fourth round Nate was going to get him guys Nate Diaz has never won a fourth round in his career he's only been to the fourth round twice want to know which fights they were off the top of your head uh, there was the title fight with Benson Henderson and the second fight with Connor he lost both of those fourth rounds
1: and both of those fights
0: yeah. So I, I, I never really understood the he caught, Nate was on the verge of a comeback. I, I mean, and anyone giving the doctor crap about those cuts on Nate, uh, no, that was a perfectly acceptable stoppage in my opinion. I don't know. I, I don't think I heard your opinion on that. How were you on that stoppage? You know, do you did did you think it was maybe a little bit safety, overly cautious on the doctor's part?
1: Uh, you know, for me. He was losing every round of the fight, including the last round prior to the stoppage, which, yes, he performed somewhat better in but still lost the round and was still taking shots he didn't need to take. The cut was horrendous and was only going to get worse, and he didn't do anything to indicate that he was turning this fight around. So I was completely fine with that stoppage.
0: Okay. Uh, For me, it was a combination of the one big cut that everyone saw, but there was another one under his eye that was actually, like, trending up to meet it. And if those two cuts connect at that point, half of your face is hanging off. So uh, yeah, I I don't know what Mosfidal I don't know what it would be if it's not Connor and if it's not Usman for Mosfidal next. I really don't. So uh, I don't know. I mean, look, I hope Jorge gets paid. That's really all I hope for that guy. You know, he's a great fighter. I like watching him fight, and I hope he gets, you know. More than he deserves, because he's been wildly undercompensated to this point. Uh, I think that was all the major news. Uh, let me check Twitter one more time. On the off chance, something crazy broke. Uh, I don't think anything... I don't think anything uh, new is broken, so... I suppose that means we should be getting into plugs here. So Pat, you and Mark have been on a wide, wacky, wonderful odyssey through heavyweight boxing. Uh, I've been enjoying that series a great deal thus far. So what do you got to plug?
1: Yeah, go ahead and check out uh, my heavyweight history with Mark Radulich. We are breaking down the history of heavyweight championship boxing. Uh, one champion at a time, sometimes multiple champions at a time. Uh, upcoming, we have just covered the first reign of Cassius Clay, a.k.a. Muhammad Ali, and his journey into exile. So what our next two episodes will cover, one episode is going to be about the 1968 WBA Heavyweight Elimination Tournament that featured the WBA's, uh, well, not their top eight ranked heavyweights, but their ranked two through nine heavyweights, because their number one heavyweight elected not to participate in said tournament. Uh, his name was Joe Frazier, and he fought for a different title that we'll cover on uh, an episode following that. But we're also going to cover one of the tournament fights as a watch along uh, for this episode. Uh, we're going to be watching along to uh, Jerry Quarry and Thad Spencer uh, from the semifinals of the tournament. And We're going to cover the eight men the six fights that took place and how the WBA crowned their Recognized champion in the wake of Muhammad Ali's exile
0: All right, Um, let's see as for myself uh, I I've mentioned this the last couple of shows. I've done a couple of uh, tape study career retrospectives on a few fighters I did one for Dominic Cruz a few weeks ago. I did one for Shogun Hua more recently uh, so feel free to listen to those. I Mark asked me to do one on Josh Barnett, and I was going That's to oblige. An interesting one. He is a really interesting fighter. Like He's one of the ugliest fighters you'll ever see, and I don't mean cosmetically. I mean, he fights ugly. But he got so much out of it. <laughs> and some of the ways that he shored up his style, that he tweaked it depending on which camp he was with. Uh, the difference in his kind of approach to fighting from when he was at AMC Pancration to when he was with uh, Billy, not Billy Robinson. He did he did study a little under Robinson, but uh, crap. Who's his head? Who's his lead corner right now? Carl something or other. You talking about Carl Gotch? No, no, um, Fulton. I think I can't remember the guy's name off, uh, right now. Eric Paulson. Eric Paulson, that's it. Thank you. Uh, it, it, you can see some of the way he changes his style depending on which camp he's with. Um, you can see. Uh, God, he is, again, he's a wildly misunderstood fighter, I think. I think a lot of people, because they see him as a catch wrestler, think of him as, think of the wrestling part of that without thinking of the catch part of it. He's much better understood in terms of his success as a clinch fighter than as a ground fighter. So anyway, point being, I was looking into doing that and then the UFC said, hey, three shows a week. And I went, oh, gosh, shoot me. So that's on hold. (laughs) I've done a lot of the tape study for it. I've I haven't written up my notes yet, but I will look into doing that in the future. And once I think if we ever get back to one a week shows, I might be able to make I might be able to make it work where I can get one on Barnett. So be on the lookout for that. I'd have a lot of fun doing those. It's. An interesting exercise for me. It helped. It has helped keep my sanity intact to so just be able to sit down, watch a bunch of a guy's fights, and you know, write down my thoughts, try to form them into something approximating a coherent sentence, and then you know, and then put out the product. So there's all of that. Um, this Tuesday on the W2M network, on the Rattle Legend Broadcasting section of that. Mark and I will be doing a TV party for season three of Netflix's Castlevania, and oh boy. Oh boy. Um yeah. Mark and I were both fairly complimentary of season two, all things considered. Um we're gonna pull this thing out, stake it to the ground, and let the sun shine onto it for season three. That was awful. <laughs> I mean, I, I know you, Pat, were one of the guys who went, no, season two sucked.
1: I didn't watch season two. I hated season one,
0: and that was all I needed. Fair enough. Uh, again, you can listen to Mark and I review season two, where we are, again, fairly complimentary, I think. Uh, this season is awful. Um, as a brief preview of my thoughts, it's ten episodes long. It, it did not need half of those. It falls in love with its own dialogue, which is not all that great, and the characters aren't even all that interesting as they fall into one predictable plot contrivance slash cliche after another. So tune in, Mark and I will go into slightly more detail, and we'll have some fun. It's been a while since Mark and I have jointly buried something, so it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it. And then next week we'll be back here for a review of UFC 249 assuming it happens. And if it doesn't happen, we'll be back next we'll be back on Sunday to one way or the other, either to tell you why it didn't happen or to talk about what did. And we'll have a double preview for the two upcoming fight nights and again, plan is for Jeff to be back for that, so we can all look forward to talking to Jeff again. I haven't had a chance to talk with him for a while and I do kind of miss it. Um, be interesting Uh, Jeff's mood is largely going to be determined by the outcome of the main event to 249 I uh, you know Jeff's a big Tony Ferguson fan and I don't blame him Tony's an awesome fighter ain't nothing wrong with that yeah not a darn thing but if Gagey knocks him out that'll be uh, it'll be interesting Uh, right. so on that note I believe we're done here Um, Oh, sorry. The other thing you can listen to Pat do, speaking of TV parties, uh, Pat and Mark got together to talk about everyone's favorite professional wrestler that they forget exists on occasion, The Big Show, and his Netflix uh, sitcom. So you can listen to them review that, where they are complimentary. We did. We did do a
1: show about The Big Show Show.
0: Uh, WWE's deal with Netflix, I promise this will be brief, is that going to wind up being the high watermark? Because they've, they've got these like loose developmental projects that they have. I think they have a show that just came out about some uh, kid who, with the power of a magical mask, becomes a member of the NXT roster. Uh, they've got something starring Roman Reigns coming down the pike, which is just a terrible idea. Um, so- uh,
1: the, main, the main event is very uh, skippable, other than it has Keith Lee in a substantial role, which I like.
0: Oh, Keith Lee is pretty awesome. So the uh, question is, do you think the big show is going to wind up being the the high watermark for WWE's Netflix involvement?
1: Yeah, 100%. Because it, it's not going beyond what it's supposed to be. And that's the difference.
0: All right. Uh, so anyway, that's our thoughts on that. Um, yeah, that's everything for me. Be back here next week. Thank you all very much. It's nice to kind of be back in the swing of normalcy pat it's been entirely too long since we've had a podcast together i'm very grateful to you for pinch hitting on short notice and uh you know you're always welcome here so thank you very much again you are always appreciated as is your insight
1: uh many thanks to the invite to come on it was a blast
0: until next time everybody thank you all again feel free to like us on whatever your podcasting medium of choice happens to be youtube Uh, If you're on there, give us a like, comment, subscribe, help us out with the algorithm. Always appreciate you guys. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Pandora. I don't know. Wherever we are, we're on all of them, I'm pretty sure. So give us a like. You can subscribe. You can give us reviews if you're so inclined. I'm happy to take constructive criticism. Uh, We'll be back again next week. Thank you all. Stay safe out there as always and continue to be well, be safe and behave.